It, it is a real joy to be uh, with you guys this weekend. We've had so much fun at the uh, Cheltenham campus last night and this morning, um, but um, I've saved the best till last. That's not, I don't know if that's true. Um, <laughs> no, no, no word of a lie. I can see the finish line ahead of me, so I'm super pumped up, and I've been told uh, that if I finish on time, uh, they'll take me out to play some golf. And so uh, it's a beautiful spring day, and I want me some golf. How many people are enjoying the spring? Come on, the sun is out. Who's confused by what that big, like, bright yellow thing in the sky is? It's a sun, people. It's kind of disappeared for the last three months, but uh, it's reappeared. But don't, don't fret. It'll be gone again uh, by Monday. So um, this week's meant to be terrible in weather, uh, but eventually we will get some sunshine um, over an extended period of time here in the great city of Melbourne. You guys live in a nice part of Melbourne as well, kind of this whole kind of bay Frankston-y, Frangers kind of area. It's nice. Like, I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in Clayton, and uh, we used to come here for like holidays. It was like, you know, you don't, you don't see, you're like, ha, ho, ha, I'm like, we're, we're around this area all the time, you know, Patterson Lakes and Caram Downs and kind of the whole kind of Bay Area. This is like kind of ho-hum for you, not for me. This for a little immigrant kid growing up in Clayton, like my parents would tell us, like, if you're good this week, we go on, we go on to the beach. We're going to Frankston. We're going to go to Mornington Peninsula. We're going to go to Black Rock. We're going to go to Mordialic Pier and you can go walk around and we'll eat fish and chips. And uh, everyone jump into the Chimera on the Saturday. That was like kind of a treat for me. This is your life. So smile a little bit more, people. Come on. You got breath in your lungs. You got God on your side. The sun is shining. It's a good day. Can someone say amen to that? Awesome. Well, I, like I said before, got told that if I finish promptly this morning or this afternoon, uh, I get to go for a round of golf. And about that, I'm super duper pumped. So we'll jump straight into this. Um, Aaron just mentioned before this uh, principle uh, that is employed when trying to understand the scriptures uh, called the law of first mention. And uh, just to recap, that just basically means when you read through the Bible and you see something mentioned for the first time, pay a special attention because the first mention gives you a heads up on how that concept or that principle should be interpreted and understood all the way through the scriptures. And this applies to God as well. God reveals himself in the Bible for a very distinct purpose. He has been, since the beginning of time, trying to reveal himself to humanity. For creator loves creation. God doesn't love as an act of his will, but as an extension of his character. So since the beginning of time, he's been reaching out to people just like you and me. Smile, that's good news. And so when he talks about himself, when he shows himself, when he reveals himself in the scriptures, pay a special attention because he's trying to show you not only once he was what, what he once was like, what he is still like, and what he will be like forevermore. That is what he's trying to show us. So it's especially fascinating when you read through the Bible and you find the first picture that God draws of himself. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first words recorded in the Bible, God draws a picture of himself to show you not only what he was once like, but what he is still like to this day. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that light, and that light was good. Can you see it? The first picture God draws of himself is a picture of a God who finds himself in the midst of empty space, formless, empty. And into that space, God would speak, let there be light. And the lights are turned on. 
life would begin to bloom. His love for the first time would be expressed to creation. In the beginning, there was space. Into that space, God spoke and he filled it with beautiful things. And the God who did this in the beginning is the same God who's been doing it ever since. Come on, that's really good news because this shows us that we have a God who delights in finding space into which he can speak and do beautiful things. He's just trying to find space where he can speak and that word would push back the darkness so light could invade. Come on, he's just looking for a space where he can speak and dead things could rise back to life again because the words of God bring life by definition. He's just looking for space into which he can speak and to do something beautiful. Smile. That's good news. Because this reminds us of what happens every single week we gather here. This reminds us of why we gather at 10.30 on a Sunday morning here in the corner of Karam Downsy, Frankston-ishy kind of bayside kind of area. That's the reason we gather here this morning. In all seriousness, we're not just here this morning to go through the holy motions sing two fast songs, sing two slow songs, listen to a priestly pep talk, try to stay awake, grab a coffee and a biscuit as we head out? No. We're not just here because we're a bunch of religious folk who like to gather with other religious people to go through a ritual so we can tick off another box on our Christian to-do list throughout the course of a week. No. We're here right now and we're here every single week because we are just trying to create, come on, space. Space in the midst of our busy lives. Come on, space in the midst of our hectic weeks. Space in the midst of our drama-filled narratives where God can just speak and to do something beautiful. For God to speak to bring light where there is darkness. For God to speak to bring clarity where there is confusion. For God to speak to bring a sense of peace when it feels like we are living in a world with crying babies consistently in the background. We are just creating space for God to speak and to do what only he can do. Come smile, this is good news. Because this reminds us of what this church is about. By his grace and for his glory forevermore. That is what Bayside was always meant to be. It's not just another church. It's not just another religious institution squashed into the corner of a community trying to do good. This is not just another um, option on a really kind of busy um, church landscape here in Melbourne. No, no. What Bayside Church is... And by his grace and for his glory, what this church was always meant to be was just a space. A space where God could speak and do what only he can do. Come on, a space for the city of Karam Downs. A space for the city of Frankston. Come on, a space. Now I'm really going through all my suburbs here. Patterson Lakes. A space for Seaford. A space for Springvale. Let's throw Springvale people in there because... It's close to my heart. A space stretching out towards the peninsula for people, come on, to hear just a word that will do something beautiful in their hearts. Come on, a space for a lost person to be found, a space for a hurting person to be healed, a space for a broken person to be mended, just a space for a prodigal to return, only to find that Father God's been waiting on the porch for them the whole time, just a space for our young people to grow up and to understand that as one generation tells the next generation about the goodness of God, that generation will live out their destiny. Come on, just a space 
for God to speak and to do beautiful things. Smile, that's really good news. All we're doing here this morning, all we ever do every single week, is we're just creating space. That's why we sing the songs. That's why we prepare the talks. That's the reason we hand out communion and serve coffee and hug High five, handshake. That's the reason we run the programs we run and resource you with the resources that we resource you with because that's what you do with resources. That's why we do it. It's not just programming. It's not just activity. Come on, it is all subordinate to this grand desire just to create space here in a broken world for God to do what only God can do. But I've been wondering lately, do you think there are different kinds of spaces? Some spaces that are especially conducive to the work and the will and the wonder of God, the mighty and the marvelous and the miraculous. Are there some kinds of spaces that are especially fertile? Seeing what God wants to do done. Are there some kinds of spaces that are like that? And transversely, are there also some kinds of spaces, as crazy as it sounds, as counterintuitive as it sounds, that might actually be resistant to the work of God, that might be preventative because of different forces and factors that flourish in that environment? Are there some spaces that quell the work and the will and the wonder of God? Think about that. Are there different kinds of spaces? We've established that the first picture that God draws of himself in the scripture is a picture of a God who finds space and into that space he speaks and he fills it with beautiful things. But are there different kinds of spaces? The reason I ask that is because uh, on my business card it says Gospel Ninja. That means I wander around this blue rock that God made and I get to talk about Jesus for a living. I do on average between 230 and 250 meetings every single year. Um, by, by December time, I'm ready for a break and my voice is tired. Uh, so I see uh, these church services, these meetings all the time. And as I wander around, I make observations. My eyes are small, but they're especially strong. And I make observations about the different kinds of spaces that I roll into. For most of the time, when you step into a meeting, right away you sense an, an electricity in the air, an anticipation, a hunger an expectation. There are some times where you walk into a meeting and you just know that this week is going to be an easy week. The gospel will be preached. Truth will be heard. That truth will do its job setting people free. And by the end of that week, someone's getting saved. Someone's getting healed. Someone's being made whole. Someone is leaving with a smile on their dial. Come on. You just know there are some kinds of environments that are just like that. Have you experienced them before? You just know, right, that the, the first beat that is beat or the first note that is sung right away, you just know, hey, it's going to be a good week. It's easy. But then there are also, and it's only every now and then, but it's a reality. Every now and then you'll step into a meeting, you'll step into a conference, you'll begin in a service, or you'll start engaging with, a, with a, even a denomination, and right away you sense a resistance in the air. There's a hardness in the environment. We're singing the same songs, we're preaching the same sermons, we're subscribing to the same theology, but for some reason it feels like the lights are on but no one's really home. 
It's a hard environment. It's a heavy environment. And not like a Shekinah glory, presence of God kind of weight. No, it's a weight that is marked by familiarity, by arrogance, by pride. And even though we'll sing about change, everyone's leaving the same way they came. Even though we acknowledge an extending kingdom, it feels like it's a spiritual ghost town. There are some kinds of spaces because of forces and factors within that environment that are actually resistant to what God would desire to do. I've seen it with my own eyes. I think the teaching of Jesus would suggest there are different kinds of environments. Probably one of Jesus' most famous sermons is found in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, in my Bible, it's subtitled, uh, The Parable of the Sower. Jesus is hanging out, and uh, he's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about this deal. And he analogizes a farm and a farmer and a farmer's work. He says, this is what the kingdom is like. The farmer goes out and sows seed. Really, really simple. The farmer really isn't mentioned again. The farmer is as anyone who engages in God's work and will here in the earth. The preacher of the gospel, a sharer of good news, a speaker of their testimony. Anyone who does the work of God, desiring to bring forth the light and the love of God. Hey, you're just a farmer. And your only job is to chuck seed. And this seed is inherently powerful. As you continue to read through Mark chapter 4, Jesus would, would, would show us very clearly this seed has supernatural power and unlimited potential. Really good things to have for a seed. So there's a farmer, and that farmer chucks seed, but the seed falls on the only variable factor, and the only variable factor is this, the ground, the soil. Come on, the space. It falls on different kinds of space, and depending on the space, this seed will either see its full potential come to fruition, or it will be another story of a missed opportunity. Jesus says this seed falls on the first bit of ground, and this first bit of ground is super hard. It's rough and it's rocky. And it never, ever takes root. And what happens is the birds of the air come down and pick that seed away and say, thank you very much. That was really nice. And that seed never, ever has the chance to grow. That seed never does what it was created to do. The farmer did its job. The seed was inherently powerful. But because of common, the environment, nothing came to pass. Yet the seed would also drop in another kind of soil, space, if you will, that has soil, but it's really shallow soil. And what happens is the seed drops into it and it starts to grow really quickly. But Jesus says the sun rises, or in other words, the heat gets turned up, and it withers as quick as it sprouts. This signifies the kind of environment that, that accepts the word of God very, very quickly and responds to it with great speed, but doesn't quite understand what the work and the will of God desires to do. Go deep into our being, transforming us from the inside out. And when the pressures in this world and the troubles of this life come and attack this little sapling, it withers. It cannot withstand, for it has no root system. Jesus goes on and says, there's a third kind of soil, a third kind of space, where the seed drops onto it and it grows really, really quickly. And this plant gets to grow really big because there's a root system. But the problem is, in that environment, there are also thorns and thistles and bushes. Other forces and factors that are vying for the same attention and nutrition. 
And he says, this kind of space or soil signifies the kind of environment where there is soil and there is a root system. But because of weights and worries of this world that are unhealthily dealt with, eventually that plant is choked out and that plant too never reaches its full potential. Yet there is a fourth kind of soil, a fourth kind of space, if you will, where Jesus says the seed drops into it and begins to grow. It develops a root system and it keeps on growing. The sun rises, but that root system keeps feeding it and it keeps on growing. Little things try to grow up in that environment, but that plant is so strong, it dominates that environment and it keeps on growing. And after it's done growing, it grows some more. And eventually this plant becomes a harvest. 30, 60, 100 fold return. Or in other words, it's a miracle. And everyone who was listening to Jesus preach this sermon originally, would have lent in and thought to themselves, my goodness, I want my life, I want my heart, I want my family, I want my business, I want my church to always resemble, come on, that fourth kind of space. I don't want to be a story of a missed opportunity. I don't want to be another cautionary tale of what could have been. No, I want to see 30, 60, 100-fold return in my life and through my life. And Jesus makes it clear. The farmer is not the factor. The seed is not the variable. It's the space that we create that causes us to either see a miraculous return or be just another bunch of people who talk about a lot of stuff that could happen, but never see it with their own eyes. I think you know where I'm going with this. I can tell by the looks in your eyes. Come on, I'm asking you this question. Come on, what kind of space do you want to be a part of? What kind of space do you want your life to be? Come on, what kind of space do you want this 1030 service in Frankston to be? What kind of space do you want your family to be? A space that is marked by the blooming of life that comes from being good soil, engaged with a good God, come on, casting good seed, or just another story of what could have been. What's fascinating is you continue to read through Mark chapter 5 and 6 after Mark chapter 4, you'll see the application of these principles. Let me explain. Mark chapter 5 symbolizes a space where the work of God and the will of God is received and the miraculous ensues. Whereas Mark chapter 6 symbolizes an environment that's rough, rocky, and resistant, and nothing actually goes down. Let me explain Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 begins with Jesus rolling to his hometown called Nazareth. That's where he was raised. That's where he kind of rolled as a teenager. But by this stage, he had recruited a bunch of boys and they're wandering around the Sea of Galilee. They're preaching the good news. They're announcing the kingdom. They're healing the sick. They're raising the dead. They're having a grand old time. But it's time for Jesus to roll home, see his mom, catch up with his brothers and sisters, eat a little bit of hometown cooking. And so he rolls back into Nazareth. And Mark chapter 6 talks about how Jesus rolls into town and he lays low to the Sabbath, the Saturday, until he goes down to the synagogue, the local church, to have a bit of a preach. So Jesus lays low to the Saturday. Saturday comes around. Jesus rolls into the local church. He's waiting for open mic time. Open mic time comes about. Jesus grabs the microphone, clears his celestial throat and begins to preach. Everyone is blown away. This Jesus guy is amazing. This Jesus guy is incredible. This Jesus guy has got such insight and authority. Wow! This cat is cracked up to be what he 
is cracked up to be. It's amazing. I love this Jesus guy. He's pretty, I love what he's like kind of just dishing up. It's amazing. So everyone's blown away by Jesus. And what happens is you continue to read through Mark chapter 6 is something starts to happen in that crowd. People begin to recognize him. Or in other words, so Jesus there is preaching, he's teaching, people are blown away, but then people start recognizing him. People are sitting in their seats and kind of going, I, I, I recognize this guy from somewhere. I've seen him before. I can't quite put my finger on it. I, I know him. I've just worked it out. Hey, Billy, you re- re- recognize this guy? Jesus. Remember Jesus from high school? We were in the year seven camp. We were there at the beach and the frisbee thing went in the water. He walked in the water. Got the fr- that dude, Jesus, that's him. That, I, ah, this guy ain't no special radical rebel rabbi. This guy's just one of us. He, what was his dad again? His dad, Joseph. Joy the carpenter. This guy left school in year 11, did an apprenticeship with his dad. This guy built the pergola in my backyard. Oh, why is he here trying to teach us? Why is he here trying to reveal something to us? He ain't anything special. He's just one of us. He's a tradie. Why does he think he's, what, do you think, what does he think he's doing up here? This Jesus guy ain't nothing. The environment was receptive at the beginning, but then it became rocky and resistant. And then something bizarre began to happen. And then the strangest verse in all of the Bible is recorded. Now there's some strange verses in the Bible. If you read through the Song of Songs, you're going to read some references to intimacy. That's going to make you blush. You know what I'm saying? There's some weird stuff about like sheep and skipping and hills and they're like this and that. And it's weird. There's some weird references to donkey parts in 2 Kings. There's some weird stuff going on in the Bible, all right? But no verses are as strange as the verse that is recorded in Mark chapter 6, verse 5. Mark chapter 6, verse 5, the strangest verse in all of the Bible. So Jesus there, Nazareth, preaching, teaching getting his ministry on. Everything is happening, but then people begin to recognize him. People begin to reject him. And then in verse 5, the Bible records, Jesus couldn't do any miracles there, except for lay hands on a few sick people and make them well. But by and large, nothing went on. Jesus couldn't. Do you know what an oxymoron is? They're basically two words that should never go together because they don't fit together naturally. Like, like government service or um, um, like Microsoft works, um, Collingwood supporter and teeth. Like these, these like this, it just... So I'm just a bitter Essendon supporter at the moment and I'm... I'm just lashing out. It's the pain. I'm just projecting. Um, There is no oxymoron in the human language as great as that. Jesus couldn't. Get your mind around that. That's even stretching some people's theology up in this place right now. Jesus couldn't. Because Colossians chapter 1 reminds us, this Jesus, man, ain't just a cool preacher from back in the day, not just an establisher of religion. This is Jesus. Firstborn over all creation, literally means the boss of the universe. Through whom everything was created, in whom everything was created, for whom everything was created. By Jesus, come on, everything is held together. Literally, Jesus is the glue of this universe. 
His might, his power, his strength, his identity actually holds everything together. Every element, every ion, every particle is held together by Jesus's reality. With Jesus, everything is held together. Without Jesus, everything would discombobulate and blow apart. He literally has got the whole world in his hands, literally. But those hands, come on, were tied. Not because he lost one iota of power for an instant, but because since the beginning of time, the creator has deemed it his desire, come on, to partner with creation to bring about his glory and his work because creation did not want to engage with the creator. In fact, slapping his hand away, God refused to force the issue for love never forces itself. And so Nazareth became a picture of a town that could have experienced the life-transforming love of Jesus, but it became just another town where the lights were on, but no one was really home. Everybody went to church, but they left the same way they came. The disciples freak out. They corner Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what's going on here? We're on a roll. Like everywhere we're going, people loving us. Like right now, what's going on? And then Jesus quotes one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible when he said, you know, I had a suspicion this would happen because a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Or in other words, he's saying, if you hang out with a bunch of people, who think that they've seen it all before, most likely those people will never see anything new again. Because they've allowed a ho-hum, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, shrunk in the wash spirit to grab hold of their soul. And God could literally show up at their church service and preach. And they'll tell them to get down. You ain't nothing but a carpenter. What a sad picture, Mark chapter 6, which was so different than Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, one chapter previous. Mark chapter 5, literally a couple of Ks up the road. Mark chapter 5, literally the week before. Mark chapter 5 begins with Jesus rolling into a region called the Gadarenes. The Gadarenes was wild. You know how like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas kind of wild? What happens in the Gadarenes? Come on, stays in the Gadarenes. And the wildest of the wild, the party master was a dude named Legion. This dude partied so hard, they called him Legion because it looked like he had 6,000 demons up inside of him. And the reason it looked like he had 6,000 demons inside of him is because he had 6,000 demons inside of him. So he's wild. So Jesus rolls into town, and this Legion, who was marked by licentiousness, doing whatever he wanted, unrestrainable, hurting himself, sees Jesus and runs up to him and falls at his feet because even the foulest demons of hell know who's in control. And so the demons look up at Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, we know you, you're the son of God. You're the God most high. We know what you're here for. You're here for this legion guy. You, we know that you love him. We know that you don't want us to torment him anymore. So no, we out. We don't even, let's not even have a conversation. No, we out, okay, because you're here, we out. And so, but could you do us a favor, Jesus? Uh, we'll jump into those pigs chilling on the side of the hill and we'll leave this legion guy alone. So Jesus looks at these demons and says, get out of legion, and they jump into the pigs. Now the pigs now go wild because they've got demons up inside of them. So the demons run into the water and they sink and they die because pigs can neither fly nor float. And so, and so everyone gets upset because why? It destroys the bacon industry for like a decade. So everyone's freaking out at Jesus and the boys. So all the Gadarene men get together with their pitchforks and their stakes and they all start chasing Jesus and the boys because, because 
everyone loves their bacon. So they're crying out, blood and bacon, bacon and blood. They're crying out for it. And so Jesus and the boys, they run away. They get to the seashore. And what's chilling on the seashore is a rowboat. And so Jesus thinks to himself, you know, let's use the rowboat as an escape vehicle. In my opinion, not the best escape vehicle like ever. You know, if you're running away from angry Gadarene men crying out for blood and bacon, bacon and blood, the rowboat is not like, vroom, vroom. but they get into the rowboat anyway and they start sailing away. They get away and they sail to the other side of the lake. Mark chapter 5 continues. The Bible says that they get to the other side of the lake and they arrive in a region called Capernaum. And the Bible says on the seashore, when they arrived there, there was already a multitude of people, a throng of humanity, people 20, 30, 40 deep, all clamoring, just trying to get a glimpse of this Jesus. Maybe hear one word that would drip from his heavenly lips. Who is this Jesus guy? I want to see for myself. They were hungry. They were, they were anticipatory. They were expectant about what this Jesus guy was going to do in their region. The Bible says in Mark chapter 5, through the crowd pushes a man named Jairus. They made way for him because Jairus introduces a synagogue ruler. He ruled in the synagogue. That's why they called him a synagogue ruler. He pushes through the crowd and the Bible says he falls at Jesus' feet. What a fascinating picture. A synagogue ruler, someone who was a significant figure within his local church, the one who people would fall at his feet and ask him for advice. He's running up to this radical rabbi and falling at his feet. Jairus looks up at Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, would you have mercy on me? Big issue. My little girl's at home, super sick. We've tried everything, prayed every prayer, prayer, offered every offering, but she's still getting worse and worse. But I just know that if you came to my house today and laid hands on my little girl, she'd be made well. You've got to understand the subtext here because this is synagogue ruler Jairus. At this stage, the synagogue had no time for Jesus. This radical rabbi who was wrecking the status quo was already, come on, a marked man by the synagogue. So this synagogue ruler must have had to travel such a distance, not only geographically, but in his own soul, to come to a point where he fell at Jesus' feet. But there was just something inside of him that knew there is something in Jesus that is not in anybody else. And so Jairus looks at him, and what's fascinating is Jesus' response. If I was Jesus and I was being attacked by religious people all the time, I would have taken an opportunity to slap him down. I would have taken the opportunity to kind of at least come make a point of what I was going to do for this guy and how kind I was. I would have, I would have like at least like had a little bit of a, a parting jab saying, you know, this is where religion gets. No, I, I, I would have, but Jesus didn't. He just looks at this religious man and with compassion says to him, I'll come with you today. Because Jesus loves the rebel and the religious the same. Come on, he loves the lawless and those who are strangled by the cause of legalism. Come on, the exact same way. So he looks at this Jairus man and says, I'll come with you today. Let's go. And so they all start rolling towards Jairus's house. Mark chapter 5 continues. You see this other character who was introduced. She's introduced as a woman with the issue of blood. She'd been bleeding for more than a decade, 12 years in fact, in the Bible details that she had spent every cent that she had. And instead of getting better, she just grew worse. She's the picture of disconnection, disconnection from society because being a woman with the issue of blood meant she was ceremonially unclean, and that means that she could not go into public. For her to go into public and to come into contact with anybody else would make them ceremonially unclean as well. So she's the picture of disconnection from people. She's the picture of disconnection from God, because everyone thought that she had this condition because God had smited her. So she's the picture of disconnection and brokenness. But she hears that Jesus is in town, and she just instinctively, intuitively knew that Jesus was different. I've heard about this guy, and maybe if I can go down and see him, maybe if I can even just touch his cloak as he's walking past, everything can turn around. 
So this brave woman, even though it could have brought about for her a very harsh penalty indeed, goes out into public. She sees the sun. She doesn't get to see the sun very often. And she sees a crowd all moving towards the seashore. She knows that Jesus is close by. So she chases the crowd. She eventually, she finds this tight-knit group of people all walking towards Jairus' house. And she thinks to herself, Jesus must be in the middle of that group. Problem for me to take another step means I have to come into contact with other people. Cultural convention, societal expectations tell me to stay away, but I refuse, come on, to allow cultural convention or societal expectations, come on, to hold me back from my interaction with Jesus, come on, my miracle. And so she starts pushing through the crowd, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, try to get to Jesus now. Jesus walking past, she reaches out, the Bible says, and touches his cloak, and the Bible says, immediately healing filled her body. Immediately, she knew that she was made well. Just one touch from Jesus and everything turned around. Just one touch from Jesus and every impurity was cloaked now in purity. Every single touch from Jesus, come on, does something beautiful and good. And so Jesus stops and turns around and goes, wait, somebody touch me. The disciples go, uh, Jesus, what do you mean people touched you? Uh, there's a lot of people around, everyone's bumping up against you. And Jesus goes, no, 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 I felt someone touch me because I felt power depart from me. Or in other words, every single time we experience God, every single time we get a word from God, every single time we get an encouragement from God, every time we get a healing from God, every time we get a provision from God, every single time we get a revelation from God, every time we get some confidence from God, every single time there's an interaction, you've got to understand, it's not just a distant deity sprinkling random acts of kindness on humanity. No, it's a personal and loving God, come on, connected to your personal situations, responding personally. It came from God himself and he felt it. This brave woman steps forward, puts her hand up and goes, oh, I'm really sorry, falls, at, falls to his feet and says, it was me and uh, I've had this issue for like more than a decade and it's really horrible and I've tried everything and Jesus just looks at her and says, sweetheart, your faith made you well. In the meantime, one of Jairus' servants breaks into this conversation bearing bad news. Announcing to all who were around, I'm so sorry, Jairus, we don't need to bother Jesus anymore. Your little girl just died. I could have imagined Jairus turning to Jesus, eyes full of tears, heart full of grief. Hey, Jesus, thanks for trying, but it's too late. But little did Jairus understand, like some of us don't understand, that with Jesus, it is never too late. Because he's Alpha, he's Omega, he's the beginning, he's the end. That means that he's the author, he's the director, he's the producer, he's the star of this movie. And the final credits never get to roll until Jesus says they roll. He's the one who holds the keys to life and death. And so Jesus could say confidently, hey Jairus, chill. She ain't dead because I've got final say and I haven't called it yet. Don't fear, just believe. Let's keep on going. So they keep on going down to Jairus' house. By the time they get to Jairus' house, March up to five records, there's a group of people at the front crying. There's a commotion. I picture them to be women because women are caring, sympathetic, empathetic creatures who feel for one another. When one woman says to another woman, you know, I'm, I feel like I gotta go to the toilet. You know, I feel like I gotta go to the toilet as well. So they all go to the toilet together. For men, we aren't like that. 
One guy goes to another guy, hey, bro, I want to go to the toilet. Well, good luck with that. What do you want me to do? So picture them to be ladies at the front, and they're crying, and they're carrying on. Jesus pushes through the crowd, takes Jairus, Jairus' wife, a couple of his servants, and a couple of the boys, and they go into the room. Picture this. Walking into a dim-lit room, in the corner of a room, lying on a bed, is a dead little girl. Now there's a problem, because it was strictly against Mosaic law to have any interaction with a dead body. But then again, technically, it was against Mosaic law to have an interaction with a demoniac. It was also definitely against Mosaic law to have an interaction with a woman with the issue of blood. So Jesus must have concluded, I've been breaking laws all day long. Why stop now? So he walks to the other side of the room, lays hands on the little girl, and says, Talitha Kawum. In Aramaic, literally meaning, little girl, get up. And the Bible says, immediately, she sprung back to life. Just one word from Jesus. And dead things rise again. Smile, that's good news. Just one word from Jesus. Come on, the deadest of souls are revived again. Come on, just one word from Jesus. The person who was most far away is brought lovingly right into his presence. Just one word from Jesus. The most hopeless situations become testimonies of how God can help. Just one word. If you come to church for no other reason, come to church every single week. Just one word, come on, can turn everything around. And like a classic teenager, the first thing she says is, I'm hungry. So Jesus says, quick, get this little girl something to eat. The servants are confused. What do you mean? Like, get her something, like a falafel or a Pop-Tart or some Nando's, whatever you got, just get her something to eat. I don't only want to see her spiritually restored, I want to see her physically restored. And Mark chapter 5 concludes with this beautiful picture. A group of people hanging out in a room. Little girl in the corner chewing on a Pop-Tart. And everybody is filled with amazement. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And as we wrap up our time together, I just simply ask you this question. What do you want Bayside Church, especially this Frankston campus, to resemble? And that's not a rhetorical question. Some people who have been around church for a while would say, that's a rhetorical question. Of course, we all want to be like that Mark chapter 5. Of course, we don't want to be like Mark chapter 6. But it's not a rhetorical question because you are forced to answer this for yourself in a real way. And you know what? You're actually allowed to be that Mark chapter 6 religious environment where nothing actually happens. Because you'll be loved by God nevertheless. Let me state and reiterate, his love for you is not given in response to your loveliness. His love for you is given because it's who he is. He can't help himself. So if you want to just come here and play religious games every single week, if you want to go through the motions in some way because you came to church and made you feel a little bit better about yourself and then kind of go about your week and then come back next week and press replay, you're allowed to do that. God could not love you any more. He couldn't love you any less. Come on. You're allowed to be that. But what a wasted and missed opportunity. Or do you want to be one of these Mark, come on, chapter 5 kind of places? 
whether hurting or healed, whether broken or mended, whether lost or found, whether prodigals return. Come on, where on just one single day, there was a, a guy, a demoniac, who symbolized licentiousness, living however he wanted to, nothing could restrain him, and this was killing him and hurting him. Come on, does that sound familiar of this generation? Come on, he is now set free, and now he is, here's a really cool little detail. He's actually the first commissioned missionary in the church of Jesus. Because what happens is this legion guy goes to Jesus, whoa, that's sick, that's amazing. I'm free now. I'm feeling good. I want to roll with you. Jesus says, no, this story is too good to keep to yourself. Wander around the Decapolis. There are 10 big cities living around here. Tell everybody what happened. So in the morning, he's a madman. By the nighttime, he's a missionary. And then by afternoon time, there's a dead little girl who's now chewing on Pop-Tarts. A picture of a religious person who was wound up, bound up, and being ground up by legalism. But now he actually experienced grace with his own life, saw it with his own eyes. Now he holds this little girl in his own hands. Come on, and now his heart's been set free. And by the end of the night, there's a woman who's basically telling all of her friends, hey, I'm clean. I tried everything in my own strength to get better, but I haven't been able to. But this Jesus guy just touched him. I'm whole now. Wow. How amazing would it be if Bayside Church, Frankston Campus by God's grace and for his glory in his time became that kind of space where people who could not be restrained by anything and have now hurt themselves from that lack of restraint find freedom and genuine fulfillment in Jesus. Come on, where people wound up, bound up, ground up by religious obligation, come on, are set free. And they actually discover that amazing grace isn't just a hymn that we sing, but actually him and everything that he does. How amazing would it be to be a space where people who are marked by disconnection, disconnection from relationship, disconnection from God. Come on, find ultimate wholeness and connection. Come on, in this house. How amazing would it be? I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church that fills me with amazement. I want my breath taken away. I want my mind blown. I want my eyes seared with images of God doing what only he can do that spawns faith deep within my being. I want to be a part of that kind of space. So therefore, I conclude with these questions. What was different between Mark chapter 5 and Mark chapter 6? As the keyboard ninja slips up here and starts playing a minor chord to make us all feel emotive, susceptible, and responsive, I ask you this question. What was different? What was different between five and six? And what would happen if we could identify the qualities you see in Mark chapter five and we foster them in our lives, come on, foster them in our homes, and foster them in this house, foster them wherever we roll? What would happen to that environment? And what would happen if we were brave enough and bold enough to admit that a lot of us, come on, fall into that Mark chapter six flow very easily? A flow that is marked by resistance, a flow that is marked by pride, a flow that is marked by apathy. And what would happen if we asked the Spirit of God as much as it stung to tear that out by its root? What kind of space would we build?
What would happen if we fostered the quality of expectation? Come on, that you see in Mark chapter 5. Can you see that? Can you, can you just smell the expectation in the air in Mark chapter 5? Everywhere Jesus was, people were running to meet him. Everywhere Jesus was, the crowd were. There was an expectation, there was a hunger. You know, every single week when we come to church and the worship leaders and the preachers always kind of bug you about getting expectant. And some of you guys switch off. You put in those earplugs because you think it's just the preacher trying to make his job easier. Trust me, it is easier to to speak to people who look like they don't want to fight you. That's true. But the fundamental reason why we are always talking about expectation, come on, our worship leaders are talking about expectation because we know, come on, that expectation creates a pathway for the miraculous in your life. This is a spiritual reality. That's the reason Jesus says, blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You come hungry, you get fed. You walking away with your belly full of what God has got in store for you has got less about the dishes that I prepare and the manner in which I present them and more about the hunger that you bring. Have you ever noticed how Hungry Jacks taste amazing after, like, if you're, like, mad hungry? Like, I play a lot of golf up at the Peninsula because uh, my work gives me the opportunity to not do much during Monday to Friday. So I just basically just travel around and I play golf. And I'm surprisingly terrible for how much of golf I play. I play golf and do bicep curls. That's all I do all week long. And it's amazing. After a long round, 18 holes, walking around one of those nice links courses up in the peninsula, on the way back, Hungry Jack's, come on, off the eat. I'm telling you, you're rolling in there. I've eaten in some fine restaurants before, but nothing compares to a barbecue cheeseburger and a cold frozen creamy soda when you're super hungry. Am I right? It's like, oh, that's amazing. That's, oh, that's incredible. Like, where did they get this beer? It's like, is that Wagyu beer? Like, that's amazing. Like, why? Because you're hungry. But how many know you can go to the finest steak restaurant in Melbourne but if you've already gorged yourself on Hungry Jacks and you go there, they can p- place a piece of fillet steak before you and you couldn't fit another thing in. You'll have to force it. You know what I'm saying? What's the difference? It's hunger. And when we come here week in, week out, I challenge you. I dare you. I double dog dare you. Come on, come hungry. When you're walking through the foyer, as you're saying hello to the nice people greeting you at the front door, allow the Spirit of God to stir an expectation and a hunger in your heart. If not for you, for the person to your left and for the person to your right, for your brothers and sisters, come on, for your family here, come on, allow God to stir an expectation in your heart regarding what could happen this week. I just want to sing songs. I want these songs to become realities. I just want to hear about grace amazing. I want to walk away knowing, wow, this is amazing grace. I don't want to just come here week in, week out and leave the same way I came. I want to go out knowing that something in a small or serious way has happened. Come on, stir expectation because it bred miracles. Mark chapter 6 was marked by familiarity. You see that? Who's this Jesus guy? Isn't he one of us? Aren't his brothers and sisters amongst us? Isn't his mom sitting in the corner? Familiarity robbed them of their revival. And as crazy as it sounds, how many know it's easy to grow familiar with the things of God? That's the reason for a lot of us here in this room, when we first met Jesus, we told everybody about Him. Am I right? 
When I first met Jesus in my first year of university, I used to pick fights in the car park at Monash University about Jesus. I wanted someone to fight me about it because I just knew that I could explain Jesus. And I would, I would want to tell everyone because it was so mind-blowing. But then after a couple of years and now a couple of decades, that which used to take my breath away can easily become ho-hum because familiarity doesn't always breed contempt, but it does always breed complacency. You can be around something good, but unless you remind yourself it's good, it becomes old hat. Never grow familiar when it comes to what Jesus can do. Never grow familiar when it comes to His beauty and His majesty. Mark chapter 5 was marked by humility. Mark chapter 6 was marked by pride. Mark chapter 6 says, this guy is below us. Mark chapter 5 had every single character falling at His, falling at His, their posture preceded a move of God's power. Don't get down on yourself when you find yourself at the end of your rope. Because when you find yourself at the end of your rope, you find the beginning of God's grace and His power. Don't be afraid to say, come on, I can't. Because as soon as you say, I can't, God shows how much He can. Come on, don't get down on yourself when you feel like you don't have enough. Because in that moment, then and only then will you experience the God who is more than enough. That's the reason the Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want to do life alone, He'll let you. But if you open up your hands to Him, it's amazing where He'll lead you. Amen? Thirdly and lastly, there was faith in chapter 5, unbelief in chapter 6. Chapter 6 they judged their future through their earthly eyes. Mark chapter 5, every single character, even before they had an interaction with Jesus, knew that this Jesus guy could do something. So I dare you, I double and triple dog dare you. Every single time you walk through these doors, allow faith for what God can do to fill your heart, amen, come on, to buoy your soul to cause you to sing those songs of praise and worship, to lean in and intently listen for the Word. Because our God is just as strong as He has ever been. Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 6. 5 or 6. The choice is yours. Lord Jesus, I thank You so much for this morning. And... Uh, I know there are many of us here in this room who as far away as it seems would desire to see that Mark chapter 5 kind of environment bloom here in Frankston. And God, I will confess to you that sometimes because it seems so far away complacency and apathy, even unbelief would cripple my soul. But Holy Spirit, I ask for a healing to come in. And I pray that those things would be pushed out and they would be replaced with expectation, replaced by humility, replaced with a great faith 
for what is just around the corner. We want to be filled with amazement. God, we want to be filled with amazement. The lost are found, the hurting are healed, the broken are mended, the prodigal comes home. Jesus, we want to be filled with amazement. Do what only you can do as you speak into this space. In Jesus' name, amen.